listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Monday, the 16th of May, 2022, and I'm joined here via Zoom by anthropologist and published author Marcus Bell to talk about Korean emigrants to Japan and then on to North Korea and then back to Japan again. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify allows ratings but not reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both. And if you're on YouTube, you can like and subscribe to us. Secondly, check us out at uh, nknews.org. Consider buying a subscription. If you get an annual deal, it's less than $2 a week. Thirdly, follow us on Twitter. And finally, if you've got podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, so to introduce my guest today more properly is Marcus Bell. He's an anthropologist specializing in refugees and labor migration with over a decade of experience working with displaced people and migrants. He now works in Cambodia and Myanmar for the UN International Organization for Migration, the IOM. Late last year, Marcus published Outsiders, Memories of Migration to and from North Korea, which we're going to talk about today. You can find Marcus on Elon Musk's Twitterverse at MPS Bell. Thanks for coming on the show, Marcus. Thank you, Jacko. It's great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our chat. Me too. Now, thanks to the popularity of the novel and the Apple Plus TV series Pachinko, created by Lee Min Jin, more and more people in countries outside Korea and Japan are becoming familiar with the struggles faced by Koreans living in Japan for the last hundred years, specifically, well, most uh, memorably during the colonial period. Uh, people may also be familiar with uh, the number of Japanese people abducted by North Korea in the decades between the six, 1960s and 1980s. But not too many people know about the hundreds of thousands of ethnic Koreans who moved from Japan to North Korea, apparently of their own free will, and even fewer people know about those ethnic Koreans who ultimately fled from North Korea their ethnic and cultural homeland, only to return to Japan, the former imperialist power. It's a heck of a story, and yet you managed to tell it in your book, Outsiders, Memories of Migration to and from North Korea. So well done on your book, and congratulations on its publication. Thank you very much, Jacko. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a, quite a work. Uh, it, took, it took several years, and um, simply trying to plot out who did what, when, and where um, yeah. took an enormous amount of mental energy. <laughs> yes, and, and you, you described some of that in your book, didn't you, that uh, as you're talking to uh, different interviewees, you sometimes have to graph out their life in a series of timelines. It all sounds fascinating. How did you become aware of and interested in this story? Yeah, um, well, initially I spent um, uh, 2009 to 2012 working with uh, North Koreans in exile living in South Korea. Mm. And um, every now and then, uh, you know, we, we just let the conversation go where it go. Um, some of them were uh, interviewees, some of them were friends. And um, they would tell me about you know, some of the odd people in, in their village back home in North Korea. Yeah. And um, every now and then uh, it would be mentioned, oh, and there were some people from Japan where we were living, hmm. uh, so, uh, excuse me, uh, what is this? Um, it sort of piqued my interest. And, and then later on down the path, as I got more interested in the Kore North Korean diaspora, that is the spread of North Koreans uh, beyond their homeland um, throughout the world, I started to learn more about these, um, these individuals who had migrated to 
North Korea from Japan in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, in particular through the work of Tessa Morris Suzuki. Mm. And I worked under Tessa uh, for a while at the Australian National University. So she added some of that more uh, academic refinement to my thinking on, on this topic. And so when it came to selecting the topic of my doctoral studies, I, I thought, well, I, I still very much am fascinated by uh, the experience of exile, the experience of living under extremely challenging circumstances and of migration. And I'd quite like to see what I can do with North Koreans or people who have left North Korea and are now living in Japan. So that's where it's all sort of the, those, those kernel, that kernel of the idea started. Yes. And uh, is this book basically a, uh, a reworking of uh, your PhD thesis for publication? Uh, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, it, it is, but at the same time, it is in, an entirely different monster. Mm. And um, I think anyone who has written a PhD and then tried to write it into a book knows yeah. exactly what I'm saying. When, when I say that it, it, it was more painful writing the book than it was the PhD, because I had to basically tear it down. Yeah. tear it down in order to rebuild it so it, it it is certainly the research comes in that period and i did right. um, a couple of follow-up research trips later on to both switzerland and japan mm. um, but um but it is it is extremely different now <laughs> right uh, i realize now that i should have mentioned in my introduction to you that you are in fact dr marcus bell uh, with a phd so uh, sorry about <laughs> forgetting that your title there <laughs> I didn't even notice, Jacob. Didn't even notice. When we first met, we were both still uh, on the uh, the graduate student track. Uh, that's my uh, defence, <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Fair enough. I I'm not offended at all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, where should we begin? How many ethnic Koreans left Japan for North Korea, and and over what period of time are we talking? Right. Well, the the story really it actually starts in the Japanese colonial period um, when. Uh, uh, several million Koreans went to Japan. For, uh, many were working in, in places like mines, mm. in factories, in, in textile um, plants. And um, after the uh, after the defeat of Japan, the majority of these individuals went back to uh, back to southern Korea, which mm -hmm. later became South South Korea, the Republic of Korea. But some six hundred because most of them were from the southern provinces, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and and they went back to where you know, where they had come from. Um, of course, a lot had changed in that time. Yeah. But some six hundred fifty thousand stayed in Japan, and these were um, primarily people who had made a life for themselves in Japan. They'd started businesses. They'd had families. Um, they they might not even speak Korean at that mm. stage. They felt um, it was better for them to stay there at that point, especially because, as we're all aware. There were rumblings in Korea on the Korean Peninsula at that time, mm. as the in the build up to the Korean War, 1950-53, and the, the war which of course tore tore the country apart. Um, and it was you know you had Koreans in Japan, Zainichi Koreans, Koreans in Japan, looking at what was happening on the Korean Peninsula and thinking, mm, it's not great. I, I think we'll stay here. So to get back to your original question, you know, fast forward to 1959 and the first ship sailed from Niigata port in Japan to Chongjin in North Korea. Mm. Uh, in total, 93,340, according to the Red Cross records, 93,340 individuals 
went from Japan to North Korea, most of whom migrated within a period of about five years. Most of them went um, mm. by 1966, 67, 68. Since then, in the couple of decades following that, they continued to move, but in far less numbers, far fewer numbers, because uh, by that time, word was getting out, Jacko, about mm. how challenging life in North Korea was yeah. for these repatriates. Do you know when that when that last ship, or roughly when the last ship carried uh, Zainichi Koreans from Japan over to North Korea? Yeah, rough, roughly 1984 was the last. Um, the last, but by then, by then, the Japanese government and the Red Cross were having nothing to do with it. Sorry, so you said 1984, was, did you? That's right. Okay, so that that's uh, so beginning in '59. Uh, okay, mm -hmm. so it's a period of 25 years. Yeah, that's right. A quarter century of, of migrations and, and 90, 94,000 people in total. That's right. Yeah. Wow. And, 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 and then the last sort of 15 odd years, around 300 have returned to Japan. Wow. Okay. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself there. Let's leave those 300 for a moment. So these yes. 90,000 or so people, why did they choose to leave Japan even after staying um, at, in 1945, and why did they choose to go to North Korea rather than South Korea, since most of them came from southern provinces? Right. Well, of course, the uh, the issue of choice is always quite a tricky one when it mm. comes to migration. Uh, at that time in Japan, the Japanese, um, the imperial project was coming to an end. Japan had been defeated, and the J Japanese Japan was shifting from an empire to a to a nation state. Yeah. And the Japanese government at this time had the idea that Japan would be defined by an ethnic homogeneity. Um, so J Japanese person would be someone born in Japan, two Japanese parents could trace their line back so many hundreds of years. And um, if you had come from Korea mm -hmm. or Formosa or Burma, and even if you had been born in Japan, even if you spoke Japanese perfectly, you were not Japanese. And so the, the Koreans at that time, they were the largest ethnic minority. They were, sick, as I said, 650,000. They were seen as a problem and a problem to be dealt with by encouraging them to leave. Mm. And when Japan um, regained sovereignty from the occupation forces, the Americans primarily, they moved to restrict Koreans' access to things like social security, to where they could rent Mm. Uh, access to medical care, th things like that. On, on top of the already existent uh, challenges, social, economic, and political challenges that Koreans face as an unwanted minority in Japan. And so you had these push factors. These were the factors encouraging Zainichi Koreans to leave Japan. And then at the other side of things, you had pull factors. And the pull factors were directing Koreans who left, who left Japan to come to North Korea. So these consisted of things like, well, North Korea, they promised free education and free healthcare and free housing and guaranteed employment. And of course, to, a, to a, um, an ethnic minority who was facing um, extreme challenges in Japan, this, this was music, music to their ears. Mm. And so for especially many of these early repatriates, even though they'd never been to North Korea, North Korea or the DPRK in so many ways was a, is a desirable place. It was 
propagated, it was known as heaven on earth. It was mm. a place where all the challenges you face now in your Japanese home in Osaka wouldn't exist. You would, you would be able to live with dignity. You would be able to educate your children, etc. And, and so this, these were the, the push and pull factors compelling people to leave in, in those early years. Right. Yes, it's, it's uh, good that you pointed out that there's always push and pull factors from both sides uh, when people choose to move from one place to another. Uh, what kind of welcome did they receive initially uh, in North Korea? And how did this change over time? Yeah, so initially, North Korea recognized that having tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of vo people volunteering to come to their country was a huge uh, propaganda win for them. Yeah, They were choosing to come to the DPRK um, to live un, uh, within the warm bosom of Kim Il-sung. They'd uh, rejected the American-occupied South and the puppet regime of recent uh, man. And I should also throw in there that contextually, so that the first people who moved over in 1959, just six years earlier in 1953, uh, the North Koreans had suffered a propaganda loss when uh, the United Nations uh, insisted at the armistice talks that prisoners of war be allowed to choose where they wanted to be repatriated to, whether to go back to North Korea or South Korea. And uh, uh, many went home, but many chose not to go back home. And that was something that, that North Korea and China and the Soviet Union were, were not happy about. So as you said, this is a propaganda victory now to have many thousands of ethnic Koreans voluntarily move over from Japan to North Korea. Yes, you're, you're dead right. Thanks, that's, that's very helpful. And so um, the initial reception, it was warm. Um, they, Koreans uh, traveled across the East Sea, the Sea of Japan, and they alighted from, from the ship uh, to greeting parties, waving flags and, and, and singing songs. And, um, and they were put on trains to various cities around the country. Mm. And of course, there were problems in the early years. We can get to those. But yeah. um, North Koreans valued these individuals. They valued them as a conduit connecting Japan to mm -hmm. North Korea, as an economic conduit, as a political conduit. And they valued them as a symbol of the, the superiority of mm. Kim Il-sung's Korea over the South. Right. And then instead of reaching back across to Japan, North Korea funded these uh, many schools and ultimately a university to be set up to teach Sainichi people in the Korean language, didn't they? Well, that's right. Yeah. In, in these early years, um, North Korea was also um, embarking on a broader plan of engaging with the mm. developing world, the, the third, third world diplomacy. And it saw uh, Zainichi Koreans, Koreans in Japan, mm. as a useful group or co-ethnic of co-ethnics who yeah. could um, both lobby for North Korean interests in Japan, who could then also benefit from Japan's uh, improving economy and transfer some of that wealth back to North Korea, and who could possibly help with political and even possibly military ventures in the future. Mm. So it was, they saw this group uh, this group of several hundred thousand Zainichi Koreans as a, um, a useful, a, a useful uh, community. Mm -hmm. and, and this was part of their engagement strategy. Now, Gang Chol-hwan, who's author of uh, the memoir, The Aquariums of Pyongyang, uh, mm -hmm. wrote about how his family uh, were among this, this group of people who moved from Japan to North Korea. I think it was his grandfather uh, who was a... Uh, 
a Zainich who was actively uh, mm. ideologically active in sort of the, the pro-communist uh, wing of the, the Zainichis. Uh, and they moved over and lived in Pyongyang and, and were quite wealthy. They had a car that they'd brought over with them from Japan and lots of household goods. Is that typical mm. of the story for Zainichi Korean immigrants in North Korea? Were they generally wealthier than local North Koreans? You had a range of people making the trip um, and arriving in North Korea. And some were had been very politically active in Chongryong. Uh, mm. Chongryong is North Korea's political representation in Japan. And some um, hadn't, but they had wealth. And so if you had either this political background, positive political background, or you had wealth, you were more likely to be um, funneled towards a major city like Pyongyang even. Mm. But most of the time, the people who were making this trip were not wealthy. And most of the time, they were not overtly political. They may have looked at North Korea and Kim Il-sung and thought, you know, this is fantastic. Here is a a young man um, leading uh, you know, a career towards independence. I want to be part of that. But they hadn't been overly active in Chongmyong, most of them. And so for the majority of these individuals, when they arrived in North Korea and they were being processed at the docks and they were being set on trains and they're arriving in half-finished apartments mm. and they were having to go to political ideolo ideological sessions mm. and self-criticism sessions, this was bizarre. It was unexpected, and uh, according to my interviewees, it was the beginning of, um, oh, my God, where are we? What have we done? Right. Yeah, and again, historically, uh, it's only a couple of years after the first major wave of purges that took place in North Korea, right? There was the, uh, uh, right. the, the, the what they call them, the domestic uh, or South Korean communists, uh, Park mm. Hon-yong and his circle, who were... Uh, executed or exiled uh, in, in 1956. So just a few years later, you've got these Zainichi Koreans coming over from Japan. And ultimately, the North Korean state, whether that was from the beginning or whether it, it happened later, ultimately, the North Korean state came to view them with suspicion as being ideologically tainted, didn't it? That's right. And unbeknownst to those early arrivals, even though they were, many of them were you know, excited to be there and they, and some of them didn't speak Korean, but they were wanted to you know, be part of this exciting new society. Yeah. They were tainted because they were, were wearing Japanese clothes. Mm. They were, um, they brought Japanese food with them and goods with them. Some of them spoke Japanese better than Korean. Mm. So they, they, to the, to the eye, in the eyes of the locals, they looked more Japanese than they did yeah. Korean comrades. And on top of that, you have this further layer of um, suspicion because they originally, they come from South Korea or mm. Southern Korea, which then became South Korea, the rock. Yeah. And so these, of course, in North Korea, your, your lineage, your political lineage is so important. And these individuals, they were tainted from the minute they arrived, even mm -hmm. though they didn't know it. And this would shape their experiences and their relationships to both the state and the local North Koreans with whom they interacted every day. Let's talk a little bit about their relations with the local North Koreans uh, living around them. Uh, did they become shunned? Were they excluded from North Korean society? Right. Well, um, one particular interviewee, Chang Michong, um, she told me that when she arrived in North Korea as a teenager, she arrived with, without her parents. She didn't speak any Korean. 
and she was sent to a local school, a local mm-hmm. high school. In that school, she was surrounded by locals, uh, local kids, and she was bullied mercilessly every day. Mm. She was called uh, pig's trotter in reference to the Japanese style of footwear. She was called um, terrible words, and um, she was told, you're no better than Japanese. You're no better than the Japs, that kind of thing. She learned, she learned very quickly that in the public sphere, she had to act like a North Korean. She had to um, move and speak and make no reference to her outside uh, origins. Mm. And then in the private sphere, perhaps with other repatriates or perhaps um, with her family later on when she, when she married, she could, for example, speak Japanese. She could tell Japanese stories. Yeah. She could cook Japanese food. So very early on, these, uh, the same people who were lauded for their, for their ability to bring, um, you know, bikes and cars and new mm. technologies were targeted for these same reasons because they of jealousy because of suspicions that they were spies and so these they learned because of these frictions mm. that they had to hide they had to de- develop this dual identity they um to make sure to minimize the chances of being targeted and later on to minimize the chances of being purged being sent to the camps in north korea And it's interesting that North Korea, which generally likes to control and direct all aspects of its uh, citizens' lives, at least in public, in terms of interactions, uh, you know, with the ideological sessions, the struggle sessions, the criticism. It's interesting that that it basically the state kind of allowed the newcomers to be mistrusted and mistreated in this way. I think I'm not sure it was a case of allowing them. It was, it seemed to be that these individuals were subject, just as everyone else was, Mm. to quite close surveillance. For example, one of the ways that the outside world started learning that conditions in North Korea was not how they were supposed to be was by letters sent by repatriates back to their families, back to friends. Mm. And these letters were uh, scrutinized by the censors, but always state censorship is partial. It's never total. Mm. And so you'd have things sneaking through, through the censors, and, and they'd write in code. For example, one interviewee wrote to her family, things are fine here. I'll see you when my little brother gets married. Now, her parents back in Japan, Mm. knew well well your, your brother's only four years old he's not going to be married for a long time but that was her way of telling them don't follow me mm. you know I, I, don't come right after me i you know it's not the right place to be did it work did they understand they understood they didn't oh. come they, they didn't come they didn't follow and so there was surveillance it wasn't total and this was similar kind of surveillance as uh, ordinary north koreans locals but because they were an untrusted group, because they were regarded as hostile forces, mm. they were subject to further scrutiny. Because they moved in some cases, they walked and they talked and they acted like Japanese, mm. it was easier to spot them. And so I'm not sure that it was that the North Korean state let them be treated in these ways, rather than it happened because they were so obviously outsiders in those mm-hmm. early years. Now, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, one of your interviewees talked about uh, a kind of a, a bifurcated life, sort of a, a public life and a mm. private life. And, and you wrote in your book about some of the small ways that uh, returnees from people who had moved from Japan to North Korea, that they had small ways of keeping their own ways of talking, eating and being uh, sort of as a, 
a cultural survival technique. Yeah, that, that's right. And when I talk about um, the kind of strategies that uh, repatriates to North Korea employed, mm. I'm not talking about things like protest. I'm not talking about um, things like um, o- overt actions, which would put them in grave danger. Mm. These were more the kinds of what James Scott refers to as weapons of the weak. So these were my, more micro actions, mm-hmm. which allowed these uh, repatriates to maintain a sense of who they felt they are. Because of their relationship to the state and because of their relationship to locals, they, they, didn't, they didn't feel like this is my place. Uh, like, I, I'm not being accepted here. I feel like um, uh, an outsider. Yeah. So, and so what happened is instead of looking out for acceptance, they looked within. And so communities or, or networks of repatriates spoke with each other. They shared experiences. They warned each other of what to do and what not to do. During uh, social occasions, they would get together and um, cook Japanese food. They'd sing Japanese songs. Uh, they would write back to family in Japan and say, please send me, for example, curry rice paste. Please yeah. send me medicine. And these things, these objects, which were items which are sent to North Korea, they had a dual function. They were used to, um, well, multiple functions. They were used to uh, curry favor with, sorry for the pun, to curry favor with with local cadre. Um, They were used, of course, by the repatriates themselves. And, And they were used as items which stirred emotions and memories in Mm. these families and and, and fostered a divergent kind of belonging, not to the country they they now lived in North Korea, Mm -hmm. rather to communities, generally Korean communities, back in Japan. So these items became so um, vital for later on uh, channeling the Mm. people who left back to the place that they had come from in Japan. So let's talk about that. Now, how, when did Zainichi Koreans begin escaping North Korea and making their way to Japan once again? Did that begin with the arduous march, the famine of the mid-1990s? The, the first recorded case, uh, to my knowledge, the first recorded case was in the mid-60s. Mm. And um, this fellow, he arrived in, in North Korea. He was taken He was taken by train to his new home, and he quickly realized this is, this is not what was advertised. Yeah. And... Uh, he ran across the DMZ uh, and entered South Korea. He was um, interrogated and he later wrote a book on it. Or, mm. from, um, and after that, he went to Japan. But this is his experiences. Uh, his name is escapes me. I'm sorry. His experiences are unique. And for the most part, the people who have left North Korea in the last 15 or so years to go back to Japan have done so via uh, the Sino-Korean border in the north. They've gone into China and they've either knocked on the door of the Japanese consulate in Shenyang mm-hmm. or they've made their way through the, uh, the route we now know of, which is through to Southeast Asia, um, perhaps to uh, Thailand, where they've been met with by a South Korean um, embassy worker mm-hmm. and they've, they've chosen later on to go to Japan. So, um, yeah. Yeah, this is, it's fascinating that once again, we have ethnic Koreans choosing, for whatever reason, to bypass South Korea, which would have welcomed them, you know, as, as, as North Korean refugees, uh, opting instead to go back to, and in some cases, to go for the first time to Japan. Why is that? What's the push and pull factor there? Right. So this is 
this is something I, I was also fascinated about. Why would you go to Japan mm. when you have, as we know, South Korea offers a quite a generous settlement, resettlement package to yes. people from North Korea um, in terms of money and uh, subsidized accommodation, subsidized education, et cetera, et cetera. So the people I spoke with, the, um, the returnees I spoke with in Osaka and Tokyo, they would cite for one thing, they cite uh, South Korean prejudice against North Koreans, and they mm. say, "We, you know, we we've heard what it's like in South Korea, and we don't want to feel that way." But the, I think the mo the point I found would they have heard that in Japan or in North Korea? I'm oh, sorry, would they have heard that in China? They would have heard that. Well, th they would have heard that in North Korea. People know about these things. They would they might have heard this in China while they were waiting, speaking to other people. They might have heard it in the Thai immigration jail if there were other Koreans around right. these these things are, are widely known mm. and um, so what I was more surprised about uh, given that uh, traditional understandings of migration immigration posit that economic factors are above and beyond the main drivers for a person going from point a to point b I was interested because there, for example um, one interviewee, uh, his name Dong Hyun Kim, Kim Dong Hyun. He chose Japan to go to and mm -hmm. asked, why did you choose Japan? And he said, well, I thought about South Korea and I did the maths about how much I would get and what opportunities might await me there. But I didn't know anyone there. I have no history there. And then I thought about Japan. Okay, so we don't get a settlement package, but uh, I still have uh, some friends, some relations from back when I was there. And I feel like a connection there. So mm. this Kim Dong-hyun and, and others I spoke with had this very important emotional driver, taking them not to South Korea, a place which could have been, it, it, it didn't mean anything to them, mm -hmm. but to Japan, where they could trace, um, trace their migratory path and their mobility thread, and it led them back to those spaces. And I found this quite interesting because it, mm. it contradicts um, common held beliefs about why people move, why they migrate. Yeah. What about uh, Japanese spouses of uh, the Zainichi? I know that some of the uh, ethnic Koreans who moved over to North Korea brought uh, Japanese, uh, often wives, sometimes husbands with them. Have any of them escaped North Korea and returned to Japan? Yeah. So Around 7,000 Japanese went to North Korea, the majority mm. as um, uh, wives of uh, Zainichi Korean men. And they arrived in North Korea, and they also very quickly found that conditions mm. were far worse than they had experienced in Japan. Mm. Um, one, one interview in particular, Kaori, she Japanese, ethnically Japanese, and she went with her, her Korean husband and his family. And when she got there, Mm. She found her apartment was unfinished. There was no water. Uh, there's no running water. There was no heating. She didn't speak any Korean. Mm -hmm. And um, there was she had to forage for food. She couldn't believe it. She said, I couldn't believe it. There was no there's no heating in my house. And I was out in the forest picking mushrooms mm. to, to, to cook for my husband's um, for my husband's lunch. Yeah. And she, she said that she was so scared being in North Korea that even when she met other repatriates, other repatriate Japanese, ethnic Japanese women, yeah. they, they hesitated to speak um, openly with each other, knowing that they were mm. being watched. They were yeah. always feeling watched. And so Kaori, of course, made the um, uh, escape from North Korea, made the journey back to Japan, where she's had to now adapt 
to modern Japan after yeah. 50 years, 50 years of being away. And she's found that things like she doesn't speak Japanese well anymore. Uh, and she doesn't, pe people ask her, where are you from? And she's mm. said, I'm from here, I'm from here. So right. it's a very, it's, it's a rather um, extremely sad story. Now, at least Kaori uh, presumably still was a Japanese citizen, so she'd be welcomed back by the Japanese government. How, what's the Japanese government's attitude to returning Zainichis who never had Japanese citizenship in the first place, or at least not since 1945, mm. uh, and come mm. back with ostensibly you know, DPRK citizenship back to live in Japan? What's the attitude of the government? Well, I, I can't say officially what the attitude of the government is. My one um, experience of speaking with a government worker um, I was I, I wasn't able to get an answer on that, and mm. so I can't say exactly. But um, the the Japanese government, for the most part, they treat these people as Japan overseas Japanese who have run into trouble. Mm -hmm. So um, once it's confirmed that they have that they didn't in, were indeed part of the repatriation movement to North Korea, or that they are the son daughter of mm. people who are part of it, um, then they are given a one-trip visa, which takes them back into Japan or to Japan. Yeah. And when they get, get to Japan, they are, if they have family then and their family's been located, then they are introduced to their family. If they don't, then they are introduced to one of several NGOs, Japanese NGOs, which provide services and support to uh, returned people who are part of this initial repatriation. Right. Um, so it's the Japanese government doesn't seem to have an official policy, and it's and that's because my interviews mm -hmm. suggested it's because if it were known that the Japanese government were bringing people back in this way, yeah. there would be quite a lot of pushback from the Japanese public. Mm. Although, as you say, many of them when they leave North Korea, they turn up at the Japanese consulate in Shenyang, uh, and if that's the right. Japanese consulate opens its doors to them, then that is in effect a tacit acceptance right. of them. Uh, as as Japanese, you know, sort of semi de facto Japanese citizens, if you can call it that. That's right. Right, because it would be very simple for the for the government to act bureaucratically and say, "I'm very sorry, but you were never a Japanese citizen. Please go away." Mm, yes, and, and and so what has happened with several of the returnees I know um, is that they have ended up actually getting South Korean um, passports, and while while others. Uh, wait, hold out longer, and they end up with Japanese passports. Ah. So it's, it, it really seems to be a bit of a mixed bag as to what yes. happens. And, and, and it may even have changed in the last few years. Right. Now, I'm, I'm very interested in this, uh, this sort of curious synergy or interplay between um, the Japanese people who once helped and encouraged Zainichi Koreans to move to North Korea, and now in Sort of the opposite role, helping them to come back and eke out an existence in Japan. Uh, could you tell us about that. Yeah, this is this is um, quite fascinating to learn that many of the leaders of these NGOs or the members of these NGOs who help returnees from North Korea resettle in Japan, they were participants in the uh, originally sending them, mm. facilitating facilitating their repatriation to North Korea. So I interviewed several of these NGO members, many of whom are now elderly men, and mm. they said, well, yeah, we were part of that. We contributed to sending them to North Korea. At the time, we felt that it was the right thing to do. North mm. Korea was economically stronger than the South, and it was making promises that they would be able to provide for these individuals. And then when we learned of the reality 
we were so shocked, we decided to commit ourselves to helping them um, get out and, and come back to Japan anywhere we could. And so it's it's this it's it's a fascinating historical arc that, mm. that these uh, they both the people who migrate and the and those who facilitated the migration have participated in. They are uh, they they absolutely integral to their re, to returnees reintegration in Japan. They help them find work. They introduce them to Japanese language schools. Mm. They help them do things like find an apartment. In, in places in Osaka and Tokyo, so these individuals are, are play a very vital role. That's uh, that's fascinating. Now, reading your book, I was struck by the interesting division of the Zainichi returnees into two groups. We, we've already talked about the first one: those who are now very old people who had actual memories of living in Japan and who moved over uh, from Japan to North Korea either as children or as young adults. Uh, and then you've got the next generation who have never been to Japan. And all they know about it is from stories told by their parents or grandparents, mm -hmm. stories that must surely include hardship and discrimination. And while it's easy on some level to understand why the older people might go back to Osaka for nostalgic reasons and look up their old residences if they still exist, it's harder to comprehend why the next generation, with no direct knowledge or experience of Japan and often speaking no Japanese at all, why they would choose to go there. Help us to unpack that, please. Right. So, as you said, Jacko, um, it, it, it makes sense that if you were born in Japan and that's what you remember as, yeah. as your quote unquote um, ethnic homeland, uh, then you might, you, you, it's natural to want to return there. But with the younger returnees, they, those born in North Korea to uh, repatriate parents, why, why do they want to come to Japan? Mm. And I, I put this down to, and, and let me tell you, um, the experiences of two interviewees, two women I worked with, Park Okja and Kim Mi. Both of these individuals, and so did others, they recalled hearing the stories about life in Japan from their parents and their grandparents. They recalled their grandmother cooking Japanese food. Um, they recalled positive aspects of life in Korean communities in Osaka and life in Korean communities in Kobe. And it's these experiences which I posit uh, pull them back to Japan. Of course, when they get there, they don't have anything concrete to latch onto. They don't have anything to tell them, yes, mm. you belonged here. This is, this is your space. And so the experience of one particular um, young woman named Miso, I, I think is telling of what can happen when a person goes through multiple migrations. Misson um, arrived in Japan and she uh, spoke, she learned, very quickly learned Japanese. She um, mastered what's called passing. She passing is Japanese. She was mm -hmm. able to dress and talk. And, um, but every time, she would interact with a Japanese. She'd know they. She they they'd say, oh, you know this. Where, where are you from? Mm -hmm. you know, where are you really from? And and that that's uh, it. It started to um, cause her some some anxiety. So she went to South Korea, and in South Korea, she thought this might be my place because my family is originally from Jeju Island. Okay, right. And she was in South Korea, and she was speaking Korean, and she was uh, and and the same question. Ah. Oh, where are you from? Oh, no, no, I'm from here. My family's from here. No, you're Zainichi Korean. Look at you. You know, listen to the way you speak. You're Zainichi Korean. So Misan felt pulled between mm. the place she was born, North Korea, yeah. the place where her parents and grandparents had left, Japan, and her ethnic homeland, 
in, in so Southern South Korea. Mm. And so I found this fascinating because how does someone like that connect to a place? How does a displaced person create these connections when no obvious connections exist? And that yeah. was the question I'm still not entirely sure that I can answer. Mm. <laughs> Remind us again roughly how many uh, of these uh, Zainichus have made the arduous trek from North Korea through China and back to Japan. Yeah, um, they, they, again, um, I couldn't find an official number through government sources. So mm. I, um, I spoke with uh, NGO workers, CSO, uh, civic society organization workers in Kobe and in Tokyo and in Osaka. And everyone I spoke with said around 300 people have returned. Mm. Okay, so it's a it's a small yeah. number, certainly compared to uh, North Korean refugees coming to South Korea, isn't it? It's it's a very small number, and they and only around fifty or sixty of them live in Osaka. Um, mm. The majority are up in Tokyo, and um, they is that have for economic strong... reasons? I think it's because um, where their family originally lived mm. um, back back in the fifties, forties, thirties, as well as where. Um, the NGO uh, with whom they had first contact um, yes. has their offices. Mm. So, so, yeah. And do you have any idea how they've been received back in Japan by uh, the uh, the Joseon Soren or the Jochongyeon group of, of pro-North Korean uh, Zainichi Koreans? To quote one interviewee, um, we hate them. We mm. want nothing to do with them. <laughs> So, ah, yeah. But so, so but I actually, um, I went to a couple of uh, big meetings of uh, Zainichi uh, returnees from North Korea. Hmm. And these meetings were facilitated by um, Mindan. Mindan, of course, is the organization right. in Japan, um, loosely representing South Korea, loosely. Yeah. yeah. Now, you've also, uh, you describe in your book that men and women uh, have different experiences adapting to life back in Japan. Yes, and answer your question through the experiences of one young woman named Gyeongja. Mm. So in, in Gyeongja, um, in Gyeongja's experience, um, in the 19, mid-1990s, when uh, the North Korean famine was in full swing, she um, s quit her studies and she began working in the markets. And so she was selling these like um, CDs, she was selling um, whatever, whatever could be found imported sure. from China, whatever could be sourced. And when she uh, decided to leave, she left via, of course, um, via the Japanese consulate in Shenyang. She arrived back in, in um, Osaka. And in Osaka, she realized that she had to do whatever she needed to do in order to, in, in order to survive. Mm. And she um, connected with uh, Zainichi Koreans in Koreatown in Osaka, and um, one of whom gave her a job in a in a fruit store, but she didn't have anywhere to live. And he said, "Okay, you can sleep on the floor of the factory until you save up for your own place." And she did that, and she worked every single day, and she saved up for her own place. While she was doing that, she was studying Japanese, mm. and she was um, she realized that the only way that she could have a possibility of accessing upward socioeconomic mobility would be to speak Japanese, be able yeah. to save money, be able to um, be able to broaden her networks beyond the NGOs who had initially helped her. I trace her and others like her, their ability to succeed in Japan 
to their experiences during the arduous march, mm. during the march of suffering in North Korea, when they were forced by whatever means necessary to survive. And, and this, of course, this, these markets which popped up in North Korea, these black markets, gray markets, they were primarily staffed. They were primarily um, occupied by women. Mm. W- women were the drivers of the, of the informal economy in North Korea during this time. Now, some of these same women have made it to Japan. They are doing the same kinds of engaging with the same kinds of survival capitalism that they did in North Korea. Mm. This time, they're doing it to support themselves. They're doing it to fund their children or their sister or brother to get out of North Korea and join them in Japan. Now, in contrast, some of the men that I worked with struggled to um, go to these same lengths. Uh, the common phrase was, oh, this isn't, this isn't a ma- Korean man's work. This isn't mm. what we do. And so I look at the same experience of, the, of North Korean men um, during the Idris March when they were required, often mm. required to go to the collective farm. They were required to go to the factory, wherever, even when there was no work to be done, um, because that was the, what the man did. And then they get to Japan and they, the first thing to do is, okay, get a job. But Learning Japanese? No. Learning mm. Japanese requires you go sit in a room full of women. I'm mm. not going to do that. Uh. Ask for help from NGOs? No, I'm not going to do that because, you know, as a man, I stand on my own two feet. Right, that's emasculating. It is. Yeah, that's, that's the idea that, mm. that it's emasculating. But the problem is that while these uh, r- women, returning women, are investing in their long-term success in Japan, Korean men are making short-term economic gains to the detriment Mm. of their ability to reintegrate in Japanese society. Mm. Um, And it's, so I talk about these gendered notions of labor and I trace them back to that time in the 1990s um, as, and I call it the echoes of the arduous march. That's very interesting. Tell us a little bit about your experience living in uh, Tsurahashi in Osaka's Koreatown and how you came to do your field work and, and got to know these returnees. Right. Um, my well, I, I, I employed uh, a traditional anthropolo- anthropological approach called um, just hope it works, pray ah. and hope. And um, so I went to Japan knowing only one person, a, an academic colleague, and um, he is a, a dear friend. Uh, and he introduced me to the um, the director of a journalist outfit. And the director of the journalist outfit who runs undercover reporters in North Korea said, you can, you can work for us translating and um, editing articles. And in return, if you, know, if you prove you know, worthy kind of thing, then we will introduce you to um, some returnees. And so that's how it went. It was a very slow, rather anxiety-producing um, snowball process where one person introduced me to another, another mm. person introduced me to another, and so forth and so on. And I, I moved to Koreatown. Um, I, again, I was helped by a Zainichi Korean who I became friends with. Uh, let's just say it, 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 it was really beneficial to enjoy Chuhai which is a kind of Japanese um, lemonade alcohol. Uh, ah. That's how I made a lot of Zainichi friends. And um, he, he helped me get an apartment in Koreatown. And from there, I started meeting returnees more often. But there, at no time was there a guarantee that I would be able to do this project because there are so few returnees in Japan. Mm. And I was told, they'll never talk to you. 
they'll never talk to you. Your Japanese is terrible. They won't even understand you. Well, thankfully, they did talk to me, mm. and it was be- more beneficial knowing Korean than Japanese. Yeah. So I, I, I was I was very lucky to be supported by some uh, very kind people, and I was very patient <laughs> yeah. as the project unfolded. Now, with uh, with any kind of migration stories, uh, it's always tempting, but also difficult to ask if people are happier now in their new home. Uh, how do you, as an anthropologist, look at the issue of feelings of satisfaction or regret about leaving a place that has been home for a long time and then moving to a new place that might not turn out to be all it's imagined to be? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging question. And migration to a new place, even if you think you know this new place, mm. it upsets, it unbalances, it uh, destabilizes. Uh, and so speaking to these returnees, and, and it's such a common story. So many of them felt lonely in Osaka and lonely in Tokyo. And their mm. first priority was to reunite with family. Mm. And, and because they recognize you know, Japan, if you work hard, Japan, they, this was a common expression, Japan, if you work hard, is a good place. So we save money and then we will get uh, our siblings out. We will get our family members out of North Korea. And those who had managed, so Gyeongja managed to um, get her sister Yumi out. And she Yumi arrived in Koreatown to live there from North Korea while I was carrying out my research. Mm. And Gyeongja, she was, she was over the moon, right? This was her first family member that she could um, spend time with. And, and I think it comes down to measuring happiness is not something, I, I'm a qualitative researcher. And so I ask, I, I will ask, I, how do you feel being here? Yeah. And, and, and often the answers are, well, it's better to be here than in North Korea, but I miss my family. And there's community mm. in North Korea that doesn't exist here. So one interviewee in particular, one guy I worked with for quite a long time, Hyongjae, he was telling me, you know, of course, Japan's safe. And of course, you can make more money. But the Japanese are so icy cold. Mm. And you know what I miss? I miss about North Korea. I miss the people. I miss being able to drink drink beer until late. I miss the um, feeling of community and friendship, and I've never had it here. Mm. And while, while, of course, we should understand the context, and Hyunjae was a, quite a well-known athlete in North Korea, mm. um, so he did have that feeling of social status that he doesn't have in Japan. There's something to be said that we shouldn't dismiss about life in countries that we otherwise think are for want of better words, terrible places. Mm. And that is that there's a sense of community and there's a sense of we are in this together. I'm not trying to romanticize North Korea when I say that. Yeah. My, my, my role as an anthropologist is to understand the experiences of the people with whom I work, not to project my own thoughts about the place onto them. You now uh, work on migration in other countries. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. Yeah, um, so... I recently shifted. Um, I was uh, working as a teaching academic in the UK, mm. and I felt, uh, as an anthropologist in particular, I missed the the practical. I missed being a, a practitioner. Yeah. And so now, well, I worked in Myanmar uh, until just before the coup, and I was working on um, researching and providing 
hopefully providing some kinds of solutions to uh, improving the lives of labor migrants moving from Myanmar to Thailand and back. Mm. And then more recently, I'm uh, living in Cambodia and I'm working on issues again of labor migration, which is very important in this part of the world mm -hmm. and uh, traffic trafficking. So uh, it's, it's some of the, the same ideas and some of the, some of the like, same struggles which um, afflicted or which were experienced by my returnee North Korean interlocutors in Japan. Um, it's very similar stories here sometimes. People move for a better life. People move because they have an uncle over in Bangkok and mm. he says, come and work in this factory. It's a great place to work and you know, I'll help you settle in. Um, so you, you see the similar kinds of uh, threads of human experiences um, coming up in this part of the world as you do in North Korea, as you do everywhere, because migration, as I hope I um, make clear in the book, mm. it, it is such a human experience and it changes the, the society as much as it changes the people who move. And um, I think it's a way for people to both survive, but also to remake themselves. Um, and I don't see it as uh, evidence of a failing rather than as evidence of resilience and a desire to um, improve life. Mm, that's interesting. Do you see yourself uh, as a migrant living in a country that's not of your birth? I've been a migrant ever since I was born, Jacko. I was, you know, I, I born in Germany and I, by the time I was nine years old, I'd lived in Asia and uh, UK and and New Zealand and Germany and and I've never stopped moving. I can't mm. stop moving now. And I talk about this in the book um, as a theory of why some of these families move between South Korea, Japan, North Korea, back to Japan, South yeah. Korea. It's because after a while, movement, migration, it, there's an ethos of um, movement and migration in the family, and it becomes as natural as as being sedentary is to right. most people. Mm. So that's how I feel too. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, thank you once again, Marcus Bell, for coming on the show. Uh, listeners, look out for his book, Outsiders, Memories of Migration to and from North Korea, uh, available at all good bookshops, I hope, Marcus. And some bad ones, I hear. Okay. And you can follow Marcus on Twitter at MPS Bell. We'll put that in a link at the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have already an NK News subscription and you're interested in more, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or have a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have feedback, questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>